What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today, my guest is Trey Hudson. First, a couple of announcements. You will soon be able to view the Forbidden Documentary, Occult Louisiana, on Vimeo for only $2. We're just waiting on verification for that. As soon as we get it up there, we will announce and let you know. We'll also post on our socials. We are also hoping to start production on the next film soon, and any assistance is greatly appreciated. You can help in many ways. If you make a donation of $20 or more, you're going to get a free PDF of Corey Hughes' book, A Warning from History, as well as a free download of our first film, Occult Louisiana. You can also help by purchasing that film right now from our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News, for only $3. You can also get the film with a Rockfin Premium membership. You just go to rockfin.com slash fknplus or click the link in the description. You'll get access to the film all our premium content, and all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin. Today I want to welcome back to the show Trey Hudson. He is director of the Oxford Paranormal Society and its Anomalous Studies and Observation Group. He is an Eagle Scout and former Army Intelligence Officer. He has a psychology degree from the University of West Georgia and a 30-plus year career as a U.S. government security specialist specializing in security of sensitive assets, anti-terrorism, security of WMD, emergency management, and other specialties. Trey, welcome back. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, Chris. I've, you know, life is good. Uh, you know, just, just getting ready to uh, jump into the new year with both feet and, you know, grab 2024 by the neck and squeeze every bit out of it as I can. So it's, uh, yeah, things are going great. Doing, doing fantastic. Yeah, you've got some exciting things coming in the works. Can't wait to see what comes out of that. But today yeah. we're going to get some updates surrounding the incredibly strange phenomena that you've been researching and documenting for a few years now at an undisclosed location in the right. southern United States called the Meadow, which you right. call the Skinwalker Ranch of the South. And it is, and so much more from UFOs, orbs, and anomalous electromagnetic phenomena to portals, apparition, unidentified creatures and entities. And this is always such a favorite topic here to cover. 
But before we get into it, it's been mm-hmm. a little while since you've been on. Remind the audience about yourself and your research. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I come from a uh, military intelligence background. I was a, a U.S. Army intelligence officer before that Eagle Scout. Uh, studied at the University of West Georgia under Bill Roll and you know, other really real luminaries, you know, in the uh, parapsychology field, uh, got injured, you know, in the U.S. Army Reserves, uh, went into Department of Defense, kind of doing the same thing, you know, kind of the intel security thing. So I, I did that for many, many years, did everything from the uh, uh, physical security of non-nuclear missiles and rockets to physical security of uh, weapons of mass destruction. You know, I was one of the guys that actually had what they call exclusionary access. I had clearance to go put my hands on the uh, WMDs themselves. You know, I had that that kind of access. Uh, then rolled back into more of a uh, intelligence-based uh, field, providing security and oversight for protection of classified information, documents, equipment, things like that. Did a stint in Afghanistan as an anti-terrorism and operations officer. And I uh, retired as a chief of intelligence and security at one of DOD's organic industrial bases. Not a lot of people don't know this, but the DOD has huge factories that build things. Mm. And so I retired as a chief of intelligence and security at one of those big industrial facilities. So, but I've been retired since May. And, uh, you know, like I told somebody the other day, that was my job. That was my J-O-B, you know, my go to work, pay the bills kind of thing. Now that I'm retired, I'm doing my vocation, which is, you know, spending time with wonderful people like you, spreading spreading my story and, uh, you know, discussing you know, really unique topics and also researching and, and trying to, uh, you know, expose the world to some of the most amazing things that I've, I've encountered, you know, in my vocation, you know, during my uh, research. I'm working on my second book, so I'm about four chapters into that already. Nice. Uh, and my publisher has, you know, been been basically beating me about the head and neck about that. So I'm, I'm trying to get that out. So, uh, you know, pretty much uh, for a retired guy, I'm pretty busy. Excellent. Excellent. Now, as much as you can tell us, how did this location come to your attention? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And the cool thing is, is how it happened. Is it basically started like all, uh, you know, delving into stuff like this starts with research you know and it's not you're grabbing your you know your your geiger counter and your your night vision and jumping right out into the woods it's doing the research you know which is kind of boring you can do a you know go to the library go to the internet look at old newspaper articles things like that and we started hearing about folklore through word of mouth about a a location that was had a haunted road you know, in the, and it was one of those, you know, don't go down there at night or them haints will get you, you know, and, you know, with your background, you know how those kind of places are, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're really rich in folklore. Mm-hmm. And uh, it turns out that the haunted road was a bust, but we had a lot of activity back at base camp and decided to start looking in that region in that, you know, general area. And there happened to be a field or meadow about half a mile from where our base camp was. So we really started focusing on that area. Yeah, for a few reasons. It was a big open area. It was easy to, you know, set up our research equipment in and all of that. And that's where things really started rocking and rolling. And so much so that when I started compiling all my field notes into some sort of, you know, you know, some sort of way that people could actually, you know, get something out of it, it, it turned into a book. So, uh, you know, and that's where we are today. And uh, the cool thing is this wasn't a one and done kind of thing. You know, it wasn't like we went out there, researched, and that was it. 
The Meadow Project is an ongoing project. It literally is. That's why we call it the Meadow Project. And we are continuously going back out there and researching. We have a trip planned uh, starting on the 25th of January. So, you know, we're, you know, still, even to this day, still researching this location and having just amazing uh, results that are that are evolving. The phenomena is evolving. It's changing, which is really kind of neat. And, you know, you've seen that at other sites. You know, the phenomena starts off as, you know, mm. And I'm, this sounds weird, bread and butter UFO, which is, sounds crazy. You know, that stuff's certainly not bread and butter, but, you know, basic UFO sightings, basic cryptid, and then it evolves into something much more dynamic. And that's kind of what's going on out of the meadow. Well, I'd love to get some updates into some more recent phenomena that you've been dealing with. Yeah, sure, sure. And I've, and I've got my notes here, so just forgive me if I have to keep no, flipping back and, back and forth. Uh, I'm a, like I said, I'm a former... Intel guy, so I, you know, I love notes and not paperwork. Oh, we love that too. Uh, yeah, back in uh, July of 2021, and this is this is after the book. Uh, we had had an expedition, and uh, we noticed after the expedition, uh, people's uh, vehicles would their alarm systems would arm and disarm themselves, and it got to be a joke that you know, okay, everybody, make sure your keys are in your pocket or in your tent because if you leave them in your vehicle, it's liable to lock itself. So we started noticing that with an individual, and we also had uh, two individuals that on their way back home, their GPSs kept taking them in circles. You know, this is in a, like a big forest. You know, this is a very remote, this area is so remote, you don't even have cellular service here. That's how remote this is. So, you know, once they, uh, you know, were using their automobile GPS, it just kept taking them in circles. Like there were these weird, you know, elect, uh, geomagnetic anomalies that were confusing their electronic systems. And in 2021, uh, this is kind of one of the, the more disturbing things that happened is one of our uh, team members who had earlier, years ago, after an encounter in the meadow, started having dreams about orbs coming into her bedroom and then things standing over her at night. You know, where have we heard those kind of things before? You know, that's classical abduction type, you know, things that, you know, manifest people have, you know, they say they had dreams but it turns out to be something else. While she was on her way home, all the electronic equipment in her car died. The electrical system died. She had no ignition you know, to her spark plugs, nothing. The vehicle completely died yep. on a dark, lonely road. Now, where have we heard about you know, vehicles just dying in the middle of nowhere? Well, you know, probably one of the best accounts is the Betty and Barney Hill you know, account. So... Uh, I have a hypnotherapist, uh, licensed uh, professional counselor, LPC, and hypnotherapist that's been working with us uh, on hypnotic regression. And so we're taking some of the team members that have had some of the more amazing things happen to them, uh, and we're going through hypnotic regression. And to that end, I don't know if you remember uh, you know, when we had talked earlier about one of my team members who had uh, two events happen. One was uh, very early in our research. He had a bout of missing time as he was heading towards the meadow. He just did not recall getting to a certain location. Uh, and he also had another encounter about two years later where he was in base camp and he heard a craft. He couldn't see anything, but he heard something move along the gravel road adjacent to our base camp. And his Geiger counter spiked up to 0.66 microsieverts per hour, which is, I mean, it's not a dangerous amount, but it's its an amount that you need to you know, be aware of. 
And so we did a hypnotic regression on this gentleman. And during the regression, we got to the part of the missing time, and there was a block there that we could not punch through with regression. Mm-hmm. Now, I talked to the other psychotherapist, and he said he, we want to go back and re, you know, relook at that point. That the block was so strong that you know he said he cannot recall anything. He has no memories prior to leaving camp and arriving at this landmark. So it's just like this big black block, you know, total memory erased. So, you know, I talked to the therapist and he said, that's usually you don't see that unless somebody has something very traumatic happen and their mind has buried that event so deep that their, their psyche will not let them recall it. And when I say traumatic, I don't necessarily mean something bad, you know, but something that changes their worldview, that changes their reality. Uh, and it could be something as encountering something that you're not prepared to encounter, encountering something that you don't understand and it changes the way you believe the world should operate to something rather physically or psychologically damaging. You know, So there's something about that block. So we hope to explore that. Now, I mentioned the uh, the craft that passed by uh, the campsite. So we delved into that with hypnotic regression. And he said that the craft, when it passed by the campsite, was invisible. You could not see it. But yet, when he was uh, asked to describe it, he described a Jeep, like a CJ-7 Jeep. And inside mm. of this Jeep were two figures completely black, black heads, no facial features, black bodies, completely black. Now, when you start going back through the, you know, the lore in the research of this, you go back to, uh, you know, so John Mack stuff, you go back to some of Bud Hopkins stuff, you know, even back to, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill is sometimes there'll be a memory that's placed in front of somebody mm. and they will recall something and their mind is trying to, categorize it that's how human brains work is we take past data and we apply that past data to what's happening current so we will try to find a pattern and apply that pattern to what we're experiencing Mm -hmm. he said in one instance the, the the thing was invisible but yet he's describing a jeep so my question is could that have been a memory that he saw something and the screen memory was placed there as a Jeep with two completely all black occupants. So the psychotherapist said, yes, that's definitely something we want to dig down into because that just doesn't make sense. You know, in regression, you know, one instance he said it was invisible and another instance he said he saw a Jeep. So that's, uh, that's just, you know, one of the things we're doing is uh, we're using a psychotherapist and hypnotic regression to try to delve into some of the mysteries, you know, that are happening. Now, this is one of the areas that I definitely wanted to get into, and it involves the screen memories like you were just talking about, but other possibilities of what we could be really dealing with with this phenomena after we peel back the layers of those false memories. You mentioned you have a hypnotherapist there, and when I look at a lot of the cases of abductees and contactees that I've even had on my show, mm-hmm. oftentimes, if they dig deep enough into the memory, if they're regressed, they will 
have these screen memories, but there's also, if they're able to break through, there's times when they have unusual items or, like you said, there was a Jeep there, and this really doesn't sound like anything extraterrestrial or paranormal per se until you get the two black figures. Mm-hmm. And the most well, concerning... It- yeah, Sorry, and the ahead. radiation and the radiation spike. Yes. And what's concerning about that is oftentimes when people have these regressions done, they'll remember military personnel. They'll mm-hmm. remember humans in uniforms along yes. with these strange beings. And that also leads to the possibility that there is more military involvement with a lot of this stuff. That's often concerning to me because how deep does that rabbit hole go? How much involvement does our military industrial complex have, especially with if people are being taken and abducted in certain ways? I want to get your insights into this and the possibility of how much of this phenomenon that we're dealing with could be human-based and could have some kind of involvement with our military black projects. Yeah. I, you know, first of all, I've got to throw a disclaimer out there, you know, as, as a dude that, you know, was involved in special programs and until recently had a top secret SCI clearance, I've got to throw this disclaimer out there. Uh, I have no personal knowledge, nor have I ever been involved in any kind of project of that sort that had anything to do with UAPs, UFOs. That just wasn't, that wasn't my gig. I did did other stuff. So what I'm getting ready to say is purely conjecture. So, you know, I've got to throw that out there to keep, you know, any security officials listening to this podcast, uh, you know, happy. Uh, so there we go. Uh, you know, you, you probably had people, you know, that have been in this business say, you know, you're never really out of the business. So uh, anyway, so there's that. There's a couple of, uh, you know, there's a couple of considerations there. Uh one is that there is a government involvement with a not only UAP slash UFOs, but the occupants thereof. Mm. Okay, that's one one option. The second option is that not only are they aware of it, they're actually contributing to their activities here on Earth, i.e. abductions or whatever. And then number three is that none of this is extraterrestrial or interdimensional, that it's it's military operations. And in my personal opinion, I was on a panel with uh, with uh, David Warhouse and some other folks uh, a few months ago, and you know we were discussing this. In my personal opinion, uh, probably about 90% of the things that people see in the sky, I believe, are undeclared military airframes, mm-hmm. you know, that are either operational airframes or the airframes that are being tested. Mm-hmm. But then that still leaves about 10% that, you know, we don't know about. So, uh, you know, taking a look at that, uh, there are some interesting indicators out there of, of weird, odd military things. One thing is a, uh, a supposedly fictitious book called Camillo. I had you're David. With, I've had uh, I've had Guffy on the show to discuss this. Okay, book, book. Yeah. yeah. So you're familiar with the book, and it, you know, and for the your your listeners that aren't familiar with it, it, it has to do with a uh, a drug addict in uh, California. I can't remember if it was Venice or somewhere, mm-hmm. and the the military basically is using a stealth 
uh, body technology and they're using him as a test subject and they like come into this guy's apartment and he's, he's, you know, like a junkie and they're all, you know, pixelated out like the, uh, like the predator. And this guy thinks he's going crazy and he gets involved in this, you know, this really wild military conspiracy. So, you know, do I think it's possible that DARPA, you know, and other agencies have technology, uh, that far exceed, you know, what we think is possible. Absolutely. 100%. They're working on technology as they should. That's what, that's what they do. Uh, so does that dovetail into the, the experiencer or abductee phenomena? Uh, you know, I really don't know. Uh, I will tell you this, and this is from personal experience. You know, people say that the government can't keep a secret. Yeah, the government can keep a secret. Trust me, the government mm. can keep a secret for a very, very, very long time. They take the secret, they bury the secret, they dig a hole with a shovel, they bury the secret, and then they bury the shovel. So, yeah, you know, it's if they want to keep a secret, uh, you know, it, it's very possible. So, you know, our experience out there at the base camp with the Jeep, uh, you know, you a lot of times, you kind of as you alluded to, you know, people have these experiences or they'll have these incidences of high strangeness, you know, deep in the woods where they think, you know, they're very remote, very isolated. And all of a sudden a military Humvee will show up mm. and soldiers will get out, you know, and the soldiers will either interact with them or just kind of meander around the area, get back in their vehicle and leave. Uh, kind of along those same lines. And this is, this is an interesting antidote and that's all i'm going to say it is i understand that you know correlation is not causality this is just a correlation mm. if you recall when i mentioned i had my incident of extreme disorientation in the uh, subsequent radiation spike in the meadow where i became extremely disoriented and i you know wondered if is that what happens to some of the people that david polites writes about you know in mm. the missing 411 is just a few moments before that moment of disorientation a very extremely low flying aircraft passed over directly over our location. And I'm talking like maybe 200 feet above the ground. It was so mm. passed so low. I go back and I look at our radio logs and event logs that base camp wrote down independently of what we were doing in the meadow. Low flying aircraft passed directly over camp estimated altitude 200 feet. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. You know, I could spend a whole yarn about, you know, what that could have been. So, you know, there's all these, uh, you know, strange indicators that happen, you know, while we're out there, definitely. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to a minute to what you were saying about people's perception whenever they encounter this stuff, how it seems to open up an area of their of their consciousness that was dormant before. And an example is the experiencer that I had in my documentary, Scott Pace, who was a hunter in Louisiana, mm -hmm. didn't have anything to do with paranormal, didn't research any of this stuff, wasn't really interested at all, but he encounters a Bigfoot, and not only a Bigfoot, a dog man at the same time, yeah. and they're psychically talking with him. Mm -hmm. But after this one incident, it kind of cracks open his perception, and he's having all sorts of paranormal encounters, missing time, yeah. memories of extraterrestrials and UFO abductions. So it all snowballed after this one encounter. What's your insights into what's happening with people's consciousness and perception after their initial experiences? 
That's a great question. And I, I'm going to use a uh, an example is I'm an amateur radio operator. Okay. So I know that I, I have my, uh, my rig set up to certain parameters that when I get to a frequency, the frequency I'm looking at is right in the middle of the, the gated bandwidth I'm looking at. And then my radio is set up to receive a, you know, a little bit to the left and a little bit to the right, but I've got it gated. That doesn't mean there aren't other signals to either side of that gate. I'm only perceiving that very narrow bandwidth of signal. Human perception is the same way, be it you know, visual perception, audio perception. I have a, a pretty bad hearing loss. So there are sounds that you most likely can hear that I have no idea of what's going on. Another example of that is as we age, and if you, anybody listening out there has kids, you can go and download these apps of certain tones that are... Uh, that only children can hear, but adults can't take that on your cell phone, turn up the volume, put it somewhere. The children start complaining about this weird noise. The adults don't know what's going on and hilarity ensues. No, I'm oh. kidding. I, <laughs> I used to irritate my kids doing that, but uh, yeah, I'm that, that kind of dad. Uh, yeah. They're, they're getting therapy now, so it's all good. Uh, but no, anyway. Uh, so, you know, there are things around us that we don't perceive. Also along the lines, there are things that we were not aware of that have always existed, and we didn't become aware of them until we developed the technology to detect them. Cosmic rays, the Van Allen radiation belt, things like that, you know, uh, naturally occurring uh, radio waves, you know, from pulsars and quasars. Doesn't mean they didn't exist, you know, prior to the 50s. Just means we didn't have a way to detect them. So when people are... Uh, exposed to events of high strangeness. And I'm talking about, you know, ghosts. I'm talking about, you know, cryptids, UFOs, portals, whatever. A lot of times, in my opinion, what happens is their bandwidth, their gated bandwidth opens up. And now they can start perceiving things to the left and the right. Back in the old days, we called them soothsayers or wise people or oracles, you know, that were standing over a fissure of fumes at Delphi. All that happened is their bandwidth was opened up, and now they're able to perceive more things around them. And I think when people have, you know, Chris Bledsoe is an excellent example of this. When they have these high strangeness encounters, now their perception has been opened up, and they can see what's really going on around them. And what what's really going on around them, and, you know, in you know, the wonderful John Keel, I've got his, I keep his book right here, you know, right next to me. You know, he talks about uh, ultra terrestrials. I call them paradimensionals. I think that's a more accurate term. That's something I coined uh, back in my book is I think we have these paradimensionals around us all the time. We have these occurrences. We have these events around us at all the time. And our perceptions are supercharged. And the gate is widened when we have these paranormal events happen to us in our lives. Now that's just one man's opinion, but I, right. you know, I think, I think the evidence is pretty strong for it. I agree. You mentioned that these beings are paradimensional, interdimensional. Do you think it's more likely that that is the case that these, all of these intelligences that we're encountering and interacting with are not necessarily coming from different planets across the solar system, but just different densities, spectrums of reality that we can't perceive. Yes and no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Isn't that, that's a good answer. <laughs> it's a good government answer for you. 
Yeah. Uh, yes and no. And, and I'll tell you why. You know, we, and I'm just going to use uh, zeta reticuli. I'm just going to use that as an example. Zeta reticuli is a distance from us to zeta. And I can't recall off the top of my head what it is, but it's a distance. That distance is represented by time. It takes so long at the speed of light to get from here to there. That's a construct. And that construct is tied into our three-dimensional Euclidean understanding of the universe. Throw that out the window. Distance is an illusion. Because in the quantum field, everything that ever was, is, or ever will be exists right now in a quantum state. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, you know, Mork from Mork and Mindy getting in his intergalactic Cadillac you know, he had an egg, but anyway, you know, and driving over here and jumping out and saying, boo, I'm here might not quite be the way things actually are. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe these visitors existed always simultaneously in their location and our location too. A, a good example of that is uh, remote viewing. We can exist in two locations at the same time, you know, and don't take my word for it. You know, talk to David Morehouse or, you know, uh, you know, some of the other uh, savants, you know, in remote viewing. So if that existence is real, if that realm is real, it stands very likely that these paradimensionals have always been here just outside of our narrow bandwidth. And when you see shadow people in the corner of your eye, and I was talking to a, uh, uh, you know, one of my director friends, uh, and there's a segment in his next film about the meadow. Uh, when he was out there filming, he said, I saw my first shadow person. I said, well, we see him all the time. I mean, it's very common out there. So, you know, when you start putting all this together, you know, our shadow people, you know, uh, aliens or extraterrestrials, ghosts, you know, all of this stuff, they are even cryptids. Maybe they're all manifestations of the same thing, which is paradimensional outside of our dimension. I want to get deeper into one of the most incredible phenomena that you've discussed that occurs there, and that also coincides with what we were just talking about, these beings and how they can manifest into our reality. And you've had portal sightings, and not only that, interactions with mm -hmm. these anomalous, energetic phenomena that you had members of your team actually kind of go into a portal. Mm -hmm. I'd love to get a brief recap of what happened yeah. but have you had any more recent interactions with anything along those lines not so much of the portals uh we've had uh one thing that we do tie into our research you know and we're we're multifaceted the way we look at things is we use disciplines uh, or uh, techniques from other disciplines and we really like the estes method you know which is borrowed from the paranormal world so we've had a lot of luck with that. But like I told you earlier, is the phenomena is changing. You know, it's evolving. So we've had one other portal sighting or cube sighting, uh, you know, other than the original one that happened in the meadow. Uh -huh. But now it's starting to evolve into something different. But you had wanted me to recap the uh, the portal event, you know, sure. for your listeners. Is uh, we had, you know, we were doing research out in the meadow. And the team I was on, we started noticing anomalous heat signatures on our thermals. The heat signatures did not correspond with the known location of any of our team members. 
you know, we were all in radio contact. Nobody moves off station unless they get uh, permission. <clears throat> and so, uh, so we started getting these man-sized uh, heat signatures. And the heat signatures started off like as a little tiny thing, got big, got small, got big, and then split into two separate heat signatures. Like something was coming in and out of our reality, you know, just mm -hmm. kind of, you know, just kind of brushing up against it. And then disappeared. And about that time, we got radio uh, contact from one of our teams, uh, you know, in the, the uh, extreme east end of the meadow, that they were seeing these cubes or boxes on their thermals pop up. Now, just imagine a cube, you know, or a box, which is really interesting because if you look at the uh, the Higdon case, you know, in Oxbow uh, National Forest in Wyoming, you know, that was a cube or a box also. So these cubes or boxes are appearing and then disappearing. And they called us back over to their location. We got there and one had just appeared right before we got there and had dissipated. So all that you can really see on the thermal video is a very faint outline of a, a kind of a square uh, heat area that's colder than its surrounding, which is interesting because when people talk about ghosts, they talk about the temperature dropping. These things are heat sinks. Okay. So we decided to dispatch a team into the remnants of where this box or cube had formed and was uh, visualized on our thermals. The team goes in there, and when they get to the periphery of this thing, they completely disappear off of our equipment. We've completely lost our heat signature. Mm. And since you and I talked last, we've gone back out there in February in the same time of year to the same location have tried to recreate that. And what we found is because of the lack of vegetation during the winter time is you cannot completely obliterate your heat signature. You know, you always have some sort of remnant of your heat signature, even through heavy brush, hmm. albeit dead brush. Hmm. And we have this on video, uh, which we've compiled a uh, recreation with, uh, you know, regular video superimposed with uh, thermal video of people walking in the same location and you can see that they don't disappear completely visually, nor do they completely disappear thermally. So uh, when my team went in there, they described it like this. They said when they walked in there, there were no brambles, briars, bushes, limbs, anything like that. They just you know, walked in there. And when they got inside of it, the temperature dropped, which coincides with what we were seeing on thermal, that there was a, a, a cooler temperature. Uh, stayed in there for a little bit. They said it was very dark and very still, like being inside of a black velvet bag. You know, just very dark, very dense. No sound. They decided to back out of it. You know, uh, you know, uh, discretion is a better part of valor. So they backed out of it. And when they backed out of it, they started encountering you know, brambles and briars and, you know, limbs and all of that stuff that wasn't there before. So what's really interesting, and this is, you know, this is a speculation on my part, but I think it, it rings true, is there were two states of reality existing at the same time there. There was the normal environment that existed there during normal times, and then there was this other environment that existed inside the remnants of this cube. So it was two states existing at the same time in the same place. Now, where do we see that? We see that in the quantum realm.
Uh, an excellent example is the dual light experiment where light exists both as a particle and as a wave at the same time. And the observer effect causes it to, to, to change in between the two quantum states. Is it possible that we're seeing quantum effects on a macro scale at these locations of high strangeness? I think that there's some compelling you know, thoughts that possibly we are seeing that, you know, on a, on a macro scale, which is, you know, unheard of in physics, but it might actually be happening out there in the field where people are researching. That is insane. Now, you said you that the phenomena is evolving mm-hmm. when it pertains to possibly portal activity. What is some of the new activity that you've witnessed? Well, what's happening is, uh, you know, we have, have been back there several times and we're starting to have people uh, have the hitchhiker effect, you know, and that's that's very well known, you know, in other areas of high strangeness. And if you remember the researcher, I told you that her vehicle died, uh, you know, on her way home. When March of 2022, uh, one of the strange things that had happened is she... Uh, had gotten home after one of our outings and we had some, uh, you know, a few things. We had some, uh, you know, lights in the woods and, you know, things like that. Uh, but when she got home, uh, she works at night. Now she's a, uh, a, a ER nurse on the night shift hmm. and she keeps her uh, cell phone, her iPhone next to her head while she's sleeping, you know, just a few feet away is a mysterious photograph appeared in the gallery on her phone. The photograph appeared in the gallery on her phone with a date time stamp of when it was sitting next to her head Hmm. as though it was taken by her camera on her phone. So she sent me the photograph. I tried to extract metadata out of it and wasn't successful other than the date time stamp. So we started doing some research and she found the exact same photograph on the internet. And the photograph was of an open field with power lines running across it. And the place where she found it was a real estate listing for a piece of property near her home. But she had never looked at that real estate listing, nor has anybody sent her that real estate listing, nor would have somebody sent her a you know stripped down photograph and how would it have gotten into her gallery so to this day we wonder was that some sort of communication that we were supposed to be at that field you know at a a particular time for some sort of experience Hmm. so it's starting to evolve you know it's not just seeing things in the woods anymore uh you know which was just you know that just really really blew us away Uh, and I'm sorry, that was, that was in July, 2021. That was, that happened after her dead car event on the road. I'm looking, my notes got kind of scrambled. Uh, so in October of 2021, uh, there were two fields, probably about a quarter of a mile from the meadow. We decided we were going to start looking at those and, you know, we have to give everything a dramatic name. So we call this the field of dreams and the field of nightmares. Just, you know, so when we say, hey, we're going to the field of night, people know where we're going. But anyway, yeah. it sounds kind of kind of cool and spooky. So <laughs> anyway, so they were doing, uh, some of my team members were doing uh, research out there. And one of the guest researchers was the uh, wonderful Katie Page from uh, Colorado MUFON. Mm. And I don't know if you know Katie. Oh, yeah. So yeah. He was a guest researcher with us. 
And so she had uh, brought a traveling companion with her. And in the field of dreams, I believe it was, is her traveling companion had the hood hoodie on his jacket pulled. But there was nobody around him. There was nothing that could have pulled on that hoodie. Another one of my team members got goosed. Like something reached up underneath her chair and grabbed her bohonkas. We call it the bohonkas incident now. <laughs> and uh, so uh, both people were physically touched by unseen forces. Okay, so now that's, that's, that's up the ante quite a bit. Something's actually touching people now. So is that more of a paranormal thing? You know, what is that? So this, this once again goes to the holistic nature of this, this area, that we have all kinds of phenomena going on there. Going back so went, to the, oh. I'm sorry, go ahead, finish. Oh, no, no. I was just going to tell you about some of the, the really weird stuff that happened oh, yeah. in, uh, in October, 2022. Definitely. Uh, so we had a, uh, I, I talked about, uh, my director friend, you know, that had seen the shadow people, uh, he is doing a documentary, uh, on, uh, areas of high strangeness and how it relates to decrypted, uh, encounters. So he decided to come out and film in the meadow. And he brought his team out there and he decided he wanted to experience an SD session by himself. You know, and he actually wanted to go through it. So we hooked him up with the Estes uh, equipment. And so he's going through the session and he's recounting, you know, what he's seeing. And during his session, he keeps hearing the words, which and Nephilim, uh, you know, keep coming up, which is interesting because the Nephilim, uh, were uh, described as ancient giants, you know, much like uh, they might have described a Sasquatch. Hmm. Uh, he also uh, had his film crew uh, filming, you know, the SD session. And something very odd happened to his film crew, specifically his cinematographer and his production assistant. Something so startling that they will not return to the meadow. They refuse to ever step foot in it again. And this was a base camp. And this is his own words. He said, quote, so I've been able to talk with the others about what they saw. It was reported that while we were doing the Estes event, a shadowy, nearly invisible being would hover over me. It would appear to either enter me and come back out. This happened several times. Eventually it went in and either didn't come out or vanished. All I remember from the event is images of destruction in these weird images of dead babies covered in blood. Oh, the wow. shadow being was reportedly somewhat humanoid with a partial body, and the head of the being was said to resemble a person wearing a hood. Mm. It was seen that what was seen does correlate to what others have seen when they describe shadow people. That rattled the cinematographer and the production assistant so bad, they, they refused to ever go out there. They, they will not go back out there. Earlier that day, with the cinematographer... We were out in the meadow, and there was an area probably about six meters circular, you know, a, a round area. And so he had his commercial grade, and I can't remember the nomenclature of his camera, commercial grade, you know, video camera. Mm -hmm. uh, and when he would step into this area, his battery indicator would register 20%. When he would step out of it, it would jump back up to 80. Step back into this area, drop down to 20, back out, jump back up to 80. The incident you were just talking about with the shadow person and the horrible imagery 
that was cast into this person's consciousness. Would you say that most of the activity you've encountered does have somewhat of a malevolent feel to it? I wouldn't say that. And and you have to be really careful about labeling things. Mm. You know, now I will say that, you know, you can go out to this location and things can happen and you can get kind of a weird, creepy vibe. And anybody that's been researching this kind of stuff out in the woods knows that when you just get that really uncomfortable feeling, Mm. uh, I've had that out there many times. But as far as anything actually being malevolent, uh, other than health effects, you know, we've had some pretty, very severe health effects, you know, from from researching this, or I think researching this, uh, you know, nothing bad has ever happened to somebody. Uh, so, you know, the imagery of destruction could be a warning. Mm. It could be imagery from the past. You know, if, if I give you a book about the Spanish Inquisition and you're reading about the horrible things that happened, that doesn't mean I'm evil because I gave you this book that references something in the past. I am not malevolent. Mm-hmm. And it could be that that's what's going on here. These images are just images and the wherever these images are coming from is either malevolent, benign, or completely uh, malevolent, uh, helpful, or completely neutral and benign. For a second, going back to the possibilities of some sort of black project, military involvement, or even some aerospace company, is there anything like that near the area of the meadow? Is there any known military facilities, aerospace companies, anything like that that might account for some of the things that you're seeing? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I get that get that a lot. Is There is a military facility not too far from this location. Uh, the kind of activities that they're involved in, you know, aren't even remotely along these lines, nor is it the kind of location that would really lend itself to, you know, having a clandestine type operation. Uh, you know, the thing about, you know, some of the aerospace stuff is, you know, the manufacturing or operational facility for something like that doesn't even have to be close to where the phenomenon is happening. You know, they can travel, you know, quite a distance but I'm not, I'm not getting a military kind of feel off of it. You know, I spent mm. my whole life, you know, or most of my life in that world. And I just, I just don't get that vibe from it. And I'll tell you one reason I don't think that that's what's going on is some of the stuff I was involved in professionally. Uh, I had to meet with counterintelligence special agents on a very routine basis. You know, all the time. And if I was out there with my team, uh, stumbling into something is I would have been waved off. Okay. Because that's how that business works is, Hey, you know, you're stumbling into something, you know, you're not supposed to be, you know, involved with, you need to stop it. If you don't stop it, here are the ramifications, you know, personally and professionally. And I never had that. Matter of fact, the 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 only counterintelligence interest in my project is one of the agents I worked with on some stuff. Uh, thought this kind of stuff was really cool, and he bought my book and wanted me to autograph it. 
Excellent. Right on. Now, I want to revisit one of the encounters you had with not a man in black, but a woman in black. You, yep. You've gone over the story last time. We're not going to go over too much of that again. But you've also done some further research into this, ended up finding this person yeah. after the yeah. fact and finding out some interesting things. Is there any updates to that story? Yeah. Absolutely. I've talked to the person. Uh, yeah. Finally, she uh, acquiesced to uh, to speak to me, you know, albeit via text. But uh, is the update on that is after that very weird experience where it was a, a typical man slash woman in black encounter, person pops up out of nowhere, not appropriately dressed for the environment, acts very strangely, tries to dissuade you from, you know, what you're doing, i.e. she, you know, kept interrupting us while we were trying to do an after action report. Uh, you know, very, very classical, uh, you know, man in black kind of stuff is, uh, I was contacted several months later by a, uh, a psychotherapist. This is where it gets kind of weird. A psychotherapist in Istanbul, Turkey. And he had heard me in a podcast. He was an American. And it turns out that he had gone to the same university I went to and studied, you know, the same program, uh, the humanistic and transpersonal psychology. And he was wondering if I had heard about a, a portal-like area they called the Carrollton Vortex, you know, in the area near where we went to school. Now, that was not really a thing when I was there. So, you know, I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm not really familiar with it. You know, and he said, well, you know, Dr. Roll used to take us out there and, you know, do things and, you know, do some experiments. I said, well, you know, Bill never took me out there when I was there. So anyway, we, you know, we discussed some more stuff. And then he said, uh, hey, you know, do you remember Miss you know, Miss Jones. And that's obviously not a real name. I said, yes. He goes, or he goes, do you remember the lady, you know, you talked about that showed up? I said, yes. And he goes, do you have her name? Because she said she went to uh, the same university. And I said, yes, her name is Mary Jones. And he goes, wow. He goes, I think I might know her. So, uh, he said, do you mind if I contact her? I said, not only do I not mind if you contact her, if she would love to contact me, I said, you know, I'm not I don't want to get anyone into trouble. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. So he contacted her and she said that she uh, had had a hard day at work and was driving around in the middle of the forest to decompress. And she had driven past our campsite and saw a sticker or something on the back of somebody's truck or car. She came back later and wanted to tell us about her uh, encounters with something she called monkey bears, which I, I think were kind of like small Sasquatches. Mm. And we were really busy doing other stuff. And she wanted us to drop what we were doing, go with her down this deserted county road. And we didn't want any part of it. So uh, her whole demeanor struck many members of my team as being very odd, you know, very strange. Uh, so she finally left. And she said, you know, she just wanted to talk to us about these monkey bears. And, uh, you know, that was about it. She didn't recount, re remember, you know, it being strange or weird or anything. And then, like, probably four months ago, I got a text or a, a, uh, a message on Messenger from this woman. She goes, hi, I'm Mary Jones. I don't know if yeah. you remember me. I'm like, oh, yes, of course I remember you. She goes, uh, I finally got to listen to one of your podcasts, and I just wanted to assure you I am not a woman in black. I am not under the influence of any kind of other entity uh, that I was just, you know, in a state where I needed to decompress and I just wanted to stop by and talk to y'all. 
And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll take that for what it's worth. And I said, so what was the deal about you urinating in front of her? Right. That's what I was. <laughs> and she says, well, you know, when you got to go, you got to go. Huh. And I'm like, okay. Okay. You know, I, you know, I'm. So hey, just as take... a reminder for the audience, this woman pretty much dropped trowel and urinated yeah. in front of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, right yeah, in front of everybody. That's not normal. <laughs> no, you know, and I don't think it's normal either. Uh, you know, that's not, you know, unfortunately society is breaking down in my opinion, but there are societal norms that still exist. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of them, you know, unless you know somebody really, really, really well, you don't pee in front of them. You know, we don't even do that amongst the team members, you know, because we respect other people's, you know, sensibilities and all of that. Right. And so, you know, that's one of those things that I just have to say, take it for what it's worth mm -hmm. to me, to me personally, it still sounds very, very, very weird. But, you know, if she had said, hey, I have no recollection from point A to point B, you know, that would take me in another direction as far as uh, speculation. But she said she recalls the whole evening, you know. Uh, so, I, you know, I, that's, that's one of the big things I just have to put up as a big question mark. I, I don't know. It's yeah. I thought after talking to her, I'd, I'd have you know, less questions and more answers. But it's the exact opposite. Now I've got more questions and less answers. Yeah. So That's I crazy. really don't even know what to say about that. It was just a very strange evening. And then even the encounters, uh, you know, and communications I had were unusual. I'll just mm. put, I'll just say that they were unusual. Mm. Now, I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the equipment and technology that you're utilizing to analyze some of this phenomena. I have a couple of other researcher friends that I know that you're, you've interacted with and mm -hmm. are friends with as well that are in the Skinwalker Ranch area, and they're utilizing things like the God Helmet and something called an Anja Lamp. Is this something that you guys are utilizing as well? Yeah, the, uh, the God Helmet, we do have one. Uh, and, uh, we use that to kind of super, you know, this is a theory, but supercharge your perceptions. So several members have uh, done the uh, God helmet, you know, in the field, you know, we have it set up to where we can actually deploy it, uh, in remote location. So we'll use it at our campsite, you know, before we go out. So, uh, had some, uh, you know, some folks experience that, uh, you know, it was really neat. I had one researcher, guest researcher, experience it, and he had, you know, the feeling of presence. He goes, now, who was standing next to me during the session? Like, dude, nobody was standing next to you. He goes, well, I certainly felt like there was a presence there. Hmm. So we're using that. And the uh, the other device, I think, is the one used by Ryan Burns. Yes. And I've actually, uh, I was out in Vernal last year and got to experience that. Now, I do not use that technology. And you know, we've talked about combining the technology possibly, you know, in a future visit out there to uh, Space Wolf. Mm. Uh, I have not used that in a field, uh, have not used that in a field setting, but it's, uh, you know, it's another technology. And what these things do is they they create altered states of consciousness, you know, either using the God helmet is you have electronic stimulation of uh, bihemispherical electronic stimulation of the left and right amygdala, left and right hipp hippocampus. 
And then uh, during the, the the session, once you've established that bihemispherical communications, same thing with Hemisync and the Monroe Institute using sound. This just uses electromagnetic energy. You start pumping energy into the amygdala. And the left amygdala is the part that experiences uh, uh, transient experiences, a transient state of consciousness. Uh, the other the other technology you mentioned uses light, and it you know uses lights across you know left and right to and I believe to create a bihemispherical uh, means of communications, and then it stimulates other parts of your brain for a another experience. So I think that it's really cool that researchers, especially researchers that are actively looking into areas of high strangeness, are taking these other technologies. And they're starting to look at this as not only a physical phenomena, but a phenomena of consciousness. And they're willing to become uh, explorers of the consciousness, explorers of understanding, the explorers of the psyche. And they're starting to take a more holistic view of not only these locations, but these experiences. And I've always believed that you have the empirical, you know, the reading on my Geiger counter, you know, the image on my, you know, ATN thermal, you know, the, the photograph, you know, through my night vision, I've got the empirical, but the experiential is just as important. The human experience. And if we can open up the realms and the apertures of our human experiences by using technology, you know, such as the, the Corin helmet or God helmet and other technologies or uh, techniques like remote viewing, hemi-sync and things like that, we're going to get closer to what's actually going on. And then you take both the experiential and the empirical, you put them together, and then you have a better understanding of the holistic experience. I want to focus in for a bit on one particular area of phenomena that occurs and actually one particular entity and that's bigfoot sasquatch mm -hmm. and this is something that i have just recently in the past few years become very interested in i used to rarely cover bigfoot shows or anything like that but the more i start hearing about the strange phenomena surrounding encounters like how these things can just disappear seemingly phase in and out of our reality, have psychic yep. communication yep. sometimes are accompanied with anomalous lights, UFOs and other entities. So there seems to be to me something much more than just a lost hominid going on with this. And I want to get your insights into this. Yeah, that that's a great question. And I'm glad, I'm glad you looked at that because that is something that was taboo for so long. Mm. But it wasn't always that way, and I have a, a book right here, it, and this is a, a wonderful book by uh, Brad Steiger, you know, the famous mm -hmm. uh, author, and this book is called Gods of Aquarius, UFOs and the Transformation of Man, and he's talking about UFOs, and what does he have a picture of in his very book? It's a Sasquatch. Mm. So, you know, even back in the 70s, you know, there was some speculation that there was a correlation. Well, we got away from that. You know, we got into the gigantopithesis, you know, type of attitude, which there's nothing wrong with that. I, that that holds that seems valid in my opinion. And I've had discussions with you know, very well-known cryptid researchers about that. But, you know, the, 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 the proof is in the pudding, you know, as they say, is you have a lot of researchers that have been out there doing this this type 
type of research that have had UFO encounters. They've had orbs. They've had minds speak. And now we're getting into an area where people are willing to discuss this. And you're starting to see, uh, you know, documentaries that are now starting to actually look into this. Uh, one that just was released was a flash of beauty. Uh, uh, Bigfoot you know, revealed. To- yeah. Yeah. Tobe is going to spank me. I can't think of the name. It was a uh, flash of beauty. Bigfoot revealed. Bigfoot revealed and the, yeah. And then the second one was the, uh, not psychic Bigfoot, but anyway, it talks about, you know, the more, you know, woo factors mm-hmm. involved in this. And I, you know, I think that's true. I think we have to look at it holistically. Uh, you know, our experiences have been, we've had cryptid sightings in this area. We've had shadow people sightings. We've had entities on our FLIR. We've had, you know, Estes encounters. We've had multiple UAP sightings. And I think you have to start looking at this stuff holistically. And you were talking about them winking in and out of existence. Uh, one of the things that we had was a, a video of thermal of a at the meadow of a large uh, hulking figure, broad shoulders, head sitting right on top of the shoulders, long arms, that was colder than its surroundings. Hmm. Okay, so once again, a heat sink. Turn the page. Back about a month ago, my team was in another research area in another state, not the meadow somewhere else and one of my team members uh had heard some rustling rustling you know in in front of her and she you know and we've upgraded to very nice uh atn ots uh thermal so you know we have very high-end thermals now and so she brought her atn and, and she's filming it and when she got home during review she noticed that there was a figure kind of behind a you know a, a, a group of branches and stuff that steps out kind of dances around and then goes back in but this is where it gets weird this heat signature was only a few degrees cooler than the ambient temperature around it if you look at some of the uh primate research that's done in south america where they're using uh thermal equipped drones to count the populations of gibbons and other type of primates you can look at the thermal footage and their faces and hands are brilliant against the ambient temperature of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. This thing was only a few degrees different. So it's like it almost wasn't entirely manifested into our wow. reality. And it just was enough that it would change the ambient temperature, but not enough to really, really, really be visible. Now we go back to what we were talking about in a fiction book called Camellio. That's not too far from what's described in that book. Mm. So, uh, yeah, these things, uh, you know, I've had several, uh, I've seen several pieces of footage shot by my team members in other locations. We've had stuff that's happened in our location. And it does seem to me that these beings, you know, and Bigfoot is such a, it's a label, you know, that you, you put on hominids in, in the forest. You know, you know, are these creatures, you know, actually what people call i don't know you know what we're encountering but you know we've had you know several instances of uh you know video capture of hominids that are just barely in our realm of existence and this is based on the thermal bed 
So, yeah, no, that certainly stands to reason. And, you know, based on what I've seen and experienced, it seems true to me. Yeah. I love it. Bigfoot has become so fascinating to me. Now we got a few minutes left for mm-hmm. the last few minutes of the show. I want to get your thoughts on the state of disclosure, everything mm-hmm. that's been happening surrounding UAPs, UFOs, congressional hearings, this character Grush coming out and saying oh, that gosh. we are in possession of non-human biologics and alien craft, things of this nature. What are your thoughts on all this? That, that's an excellent question, Grush. Uh, I was contacted uh, by the founder of a very highly respected UAP organization that I'm a member of. And he asked me, based on my background, what was my opinion of Grush? And here's my answer. Is in the special access community, you're not read into everything. You know, you're only read into the programs that you have a need to be read into. And him as, uh, I think he was with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and some other agencies, he would only have been read into what he's working on. Now, like anything else, sometimes there's water cooler talk. And you might have several programs being run inside of the same SAPF, Special Access Program Facility. That's called a SAPF. And it's called co-utilization, meaning one room might have one program, one room might have another program, another room might be where they work on another program, and they might have a common meal break area and all of that. And that sometimes you pick up stuff. And what he said is he never said that he was read into the program that dealt with the recovery of biologics or craft. He never said that. Mm-hmm. Because if he had been read into that program, you sign a non-disclosure agreement, which is above and beyond your collateral top secret non-disclosure agreement. This is another non-disclosure agreement that you sign when you go into the special access world. Uh, and just take my word for it, because I was the guy with, that would administer these briefings, is you don't talk about it. If you're read right into the program, you never talk about it until you're given permission. Mm-hmm. So if he had been read right into that program, he would not talk about it because he would be liable to civil and criminal penalties, heavy civil and criminal penalties. If you don't think that's true, talk to Robert Hansen, who recently died. He was a UFO guy that, I mean, a, a FBI guy that gave uh, secrets to the Soviets and spent lifetime in prison in the Supermax facility. So you don't talk about it. But if you hear about it and you haven't signed a non-disclosure statement for that particular program, you're not under a specific obligation not to disclose it because you have no personal knowledge of it. It's all hearsay. It's like I can speculate all day long on you know, other programs if I'm not read into them because it's just speculation on my part. Uh, so if you have a program that's being run and you think that there's fraud, waste, and abuse in the special access world, there's a special number and it's listed right next to the door or on the bulletin board of every SAPF of a special office in, in the office of the inspector generals for DOD who deals with fraud, waste, and abuse for special access programs. And you call that number. So if I had a program that I thought that was not a, a, a program that was being administered either as a acknowledged program, unacknowledged program, or waived program, even waived programs, which have a way are waived from a disclosure to Congress, there are still certain congressional members that are briefed on these programs. 
They're just buried under the line item budgets in DOD. Cong Congress still has oversight. So if I thought that there was a program I heard a rumor about that was not being administered properly, I would report it to the DOD IG, the DOD Office of Inspector General. And when I wanted to discuss it in front of Congress, I would go to my security manager and say, hey, I want to discuss, you know, this, this alien body and craft recovery program. The security manager over your program isn't read into the other program. So you're going to say, well, I don't have any knowledge of this. So yeah, talk about whatever you want. To my knowledge, you're not disclosing anything classified. So if I was in that world and I wanted to have disclosure I wanted to protect myself. It would be something that I had no direct knowledge of. And then I would give myself whistleblower overhead protection from the Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General as a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And that is how I could do disclosure about a potential special access program. But since I never signed a non-disclosure agreement, I couldn't be held criminally liable. And I could get around that. And what makes it interesting is... His records of psychological counseling were disclosed. You know, they were leaked. Now, in the world of clearances, and that was, you know, like I said, the world I worked in, is having psychological care or mental health care is, is not anything bad. You know, there are 13 factors listed in DOD, uh, you know, the DOD uh, 50, let's see, 5200.2, not point one, which is the uh, personnel security uh, manual for Department of Defense. And there's 13 disqualifying factors for holding a clearance. And there's also a list of uh, mitigating factors. One of them is mental health. And one of the mitigating factors is, are you receiving treatment for it? He never lost his clearance. So it's really a non-issue. It's not a big deal. I had plenty of people, you know, that I worked with that were receiving mental health, you know, treatment. And I never took their clearances away because they were getting help. It's not a big deal. So why would somebody go to the trouble of trying to discredit him because they can't go after him legally. They can't go after him civilly. They can't go after him legally because he never signed a non-disclosure agreement, nor was he ever formally read into this program, but he's too close to the truth. So do I have proof of any of this? No, but if I was going to do that, that's how I would go about it. If I was going to do disclosure about something that I became aware of and yet wasn't read into, that's how I would go about it. So the individual that contacted me, the high-level individual from, you know, well-known UAP group, you know, when I explained that to him that way, he's like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. That seems very plausible, and it seems like a very methodical and well-thought-out way to orchestrate disclosure. Do you think so. there's some sort of organization behind this that there could be some at high levels that are – putting down the orders in certain ways to start disclosing this as a, as a, a drip feed of information mm -hmm. because yeah. they have to, to get ahead of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh two, two ways to look at that. One is, uh, is these programs have a, a operation called de-establishment and that's when you de-establish de a special access program and you can de-establish it down to the collateral classification level level secret, top secret, confidential, or you can declassify it. And there's a way to go about doing that. And so it is possible. And a great example of that was uh, Project Stargate, Project Grill Flame, uh, and some of the other remote viewing programs. 
when that started trickling out, you know, you would hear little bits about it. And then you would start seeing declassified documents coming out of the CIA, DIA, uh, U.S. Army, INSCOM, things like that. So, you know, that's how it's done. So it's possible that this is either A, a legitimate uh, trickle of disclosure, getting ready for official declassification of documents and information, or B, it's misinformation. Mm. Now, that's another thing is when you get too close to reality for a special access program, you will divert it. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Mirage Men. Yeah. Uh, that how they do that is legitimate. That is, you, if you get too close to a classified airframe, you will try to distract what people are actually seeing. Oh, well, you're, you're seeing a UFO when actually you're seeing a predecessor of the uh, B-2 stealth bomb, spirit bomber is what you're seeing. But we're going to say you were seeing a UFO because that delegitimizes what you say. Hmm. Wow, this is very interesting times that we're in right now. I'm very excited to see what the future holds yep. in the realms of disclosure. And Trey, thank you so much. This was fantastic. We're definitely going to have to do this again soon and get deeper into this. Before you head out, let the audience know how they can find out more about you, get your books, and all the content you have. Yeah, great. Uh, the My book can be found on Amazon. When you go to the search bar, just type in Trey Hudson, uh, and the book will pop up. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you can go to my new website, which is treyhudsonresearch.com. And I have a link there to buy the book. And I have lots of uh, neat photographs of when I was a young man and, you know, other adventurous places. And, uh, also you can go to Facebook to Trey Hudson dash author. Uh, I'm also there. The name of the book is the Meadow Project Explorations into the South Skinwalker Ranch. I'm working on book number two, which is uh, working title is Return to the Meadow, Congruences, Explorations and Re Revelations. Excellent. Trey, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to all the amazing things you have upcoming and we'll definitely do this again soon in the future. Until next time, everyone have an excellent evening. We will talk again tomorrow and we'll see y'all then.